You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Good evening, everybody. Thank you all for joining us out here in this absolutely gorgeous evening, in this absolutely gorgeous pavilion. It's so special to actually be out here face-to-face as humans. Uh, This is certainly my first time in an almost room with a large group of people like this. Um, And it's, yeah, it feels pretty special and a bit scary. So I'm Bonnie Shaw, I'm the uh, co-founder at Place Intelligence. Um, We're an an agency that works with big data uh, and a deep respect for planning and city design to produce evidence to support decision-making and and city design work. Um, And we've partnered tonight with our good friends at Arup and Hassel to bring you a series of conversations uh, about data and about knowledge and uh, about the role that city design plays in revitalizing our cultural institutions and our cities. Um, Just as we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands that we are on today, uh, where people have been making, discussing and building for many thousands of years. We celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal people and their ongoing culture and connections to the lands and waters of this country. We pay our respects to elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with us today. And as I was coming to the event tonight, I thought I need a notebook and I haven't needed a notebook for a long period of time because I've just written on scraps that are sitting around my desk, which I eventually throw away. Um, And I found this one and I I grabbed it in a hurry, but it's actually a guidebook. And as I was walking here tonight, I was thinking about just the different ways that we engage with information and how this conversation started. And certainly the conversation with Bonnie began through a discussion about this return to to the city that we are having at the moment and the different kinds of information and data that were suddenly coming forward, telling us different ways about how we were living, how we wanted to live, whether we should continue to live in that way. And then the conversation very much expanded with the the discussion with Annie from um, Hassel around, well, whose voices do we we hear in that? How do we understand how our city is feeling? What is the temperature of our city? And what can we do with data to help understand that? So in that spirit, we'd like to help build on that conversation tonight. So we would encourage you all to be vocal, to ask questions, Um, We'll be asking our panellists to be building on things that others have been saying. Um, And tonight we'll bring you three different conversations. So the first conversation tonight will focus around data as illumination and the role that data can play in revealing new insights and new knowledge about our cities um, as we kind of grapple with some pretty interesting challenges. Then we are going to talk about some of our knowledge and cultural institutions and the way that they have helped us to understand different kinds of information flows, the voices that we are hearing through that. And then finally, a conversation around how design can help us to engage different communities and have different types of conversations. Um, We'll also be having some Q&A in between um, our sessions. So we'd encourage you all just to get comfy um, as we bring our first panelists up here. We'd also encourage you all just to catch an eye of someone that you don't know. It's all a bit awkward. 
use that social awkwardness to introduce yourself to someone that you don't know. Um, say hi and look forward to a great conversation. Thanks, Bree. Thanks. Uh, so I'll introduce our first panel. If you guys want to come up. So our first panel is focused around data as illumination, and we're joined by four incredible data experts and city makers. Um, on my left here is Narayan Ubishal. Uh, he's the CEO and co-founder of Place Intelligence. Um, Narayan's got 15, 20 years of experience working across placemaking and campus activation and asset management and data science, uh, and brings that to uh, the invention and delivery of some incredible data-driven tools. Next up is Marion Terrell. Marion is a uh, senior expert uh, in all things government and, uh, and city data, and she's been leading the cities and transport uh, program at the Grattan Institute for the last 15 years. Next up is Sarah MacArthur, uh, the newly appointed acting director of City Lab, the city of Melbourne's innovation team, uh, where she leads a whole range of incredible programs looking at service design for better city impact. And then finally, on my left is Niels Volta, who is a senior interaction designer at Paper Giant. Um, and Niels brings uh, an incredible degree of experience um, as a researcher, academic, and practitioner working with data and technology across cities. So please welcome them. And so I wanted to start the discussion tonight and throw it open to the panel with a question. And Sarah, I'm going to start with you around uh, what these new kinds of data sources that we can access are teaching us about our cities that we didn't already know. I think uh, so many things, like it's... Uh, we want to dig into this a little bit more, but with Sharon Madden's comment um, from her new computer, you know, what, from her new book, what we're using the metaphor of the city is not a computer for and what kind of, or the way that our language and the way that we um, view cities and uh, what that actually tells us about what we can draw out of it. So how do we look with new eyes, I think, at what the data is actually telling us. How do we find new metaphors to actually describe uh, what's actually happening within cities? Um, and also think about not just past um, and what we've gathered previously, but how do we actually start to think about the future and uh, the ways that we can map place and what those desirable or preferred futures actually look like and bring that into the mix. Amazing. And you do a lot of work around speculative futures. Um, do you want to maybe explain a little bit about what that's about and what kind of data you might use in that work? Yeah, I think uh, one of the things I'm working on right now and um, working with RMIT to, to bring forward a, um, a master's course which really focuses on the idea of imagination. Um, and if one of the, the core uh, tools that we're looking at is a lack of um, ability to around finding collective imagination, collective sense-making and collective decision-making on our futures, how do we find ways to um, encourage uh, people and give them the tools to feel like they have agency 
uh, within futures. I think um, futures is something that is often seen as the domain of a few or, you know, powerful or, you know, whether it's, you know, technocratic societies, government, whoever. Um, how do you find ways to find diverse and pluralistic futures to encourage um, everyone to have um, an ability to, to shape what that is? And how do you make sure that they're not uh, um, relying on used futures or futures that have been presented to them in many different ways, like media, culture, film, um, or influenced in other ways to really find what their desire is and then pull that forward to help make decisions. Awesome. And so this idea of kind of opening up access for participation from everyone. Noran, I'll throw to you um, and maybe the, a similar question. What um, access to these new data sources, what do you think it's changing about how we're designing cities? Thanks, Bonnie. Um, great to be here. Thanks, everyone, for coming out. And uh, thank you for the fascinating insights. We've been working really hard to try and understand how we can aggregate really large data sets at national and international scales and machine through that so we can find patterns in places and precincts and local communities and all the way up to the macro scale. And then, of course, keeping in mind the, the locality of place, how we understand our local context, our local communities, and bring that together in, in unique ways that we can generate insights to power design-based decision-making. And I guess the, the interesting thing there is, with so much data that's out there, the question is around building the tools that we need first to unlock that data, but of course building the knowledge and literacy and the design and planning community of how to approach that data in the first place. And so we're seeing this first wave of that happening globally at the moment. There's a lot of democratization of mobility data and qualitative data from social media, um, all kinds of information that's now accessible. Um, but the question has always been, how do we find insight and meaning in that information as opposed to just, you know, death by data. Often we're, we, we present these, these large, you know, complex reports with every metric under the sun. And it really comes down to those very salient sound bites that's going to allow a decision maker to have more confidence in what it is that is being prescribed. And so I think in, in that respect, you know, as we move towards from, you know, hindsight diagnostic analytics into insight and predictive analytics and then finally into the artificial intelligence piece and machine learning around looking at big patterns, which is, you know, like Netflix is recommending a movie, computers might very well recommend potential patterns or solutions that you might like to look at. But it is, of course, the role of the designer as the prescriptive analyst, which you've always been, it, uh, prescribing the future conditions for societies to use that information in more meaningful ways. So, of course, the goal here, I think, is to unlock data and then learn how to work with that to create meaningful and tangible benefit. Amazing. Um, and, Marion, in your work, when you're producing these um, very complex reports um, on the state of uh, how the transport networks are functioning and the roles that that plays in, in our cities and, and economies. How are you seeing those, the, the data that you're using and the insights that you're producing being used um, by the audience that you're targeting? Uh, so thanks for the question. Um, I guess what I've... There's been a lot of downside to COVID, but I think what the real upside for me has been is the absolute explosion in real-time data and so we're getting, and it's not, not just for me, but I, I think decision makers are relying on, um, they're 
they're looking, they, there's no point in knowing that there's a recession a year after it's happened. People really want to know right now. And so governments have become more innovative as well, looking at things like payroll data, restaurant bookings, mobility data, um, uh, visa transactions and, and shipping movements and many, many sources. And uh, each of them is, is quite imperfect. And I think that's partly, there's been a bit of prejudice against using them for that reason. But there's a, a, an enormous strength in being able to triangulate and use multiple sources so that even though they're imperfect, collectively you can get a much more responsive uh, picture of what is going on. And at a time like we've just been going through and are continuing to, that's, it just gives us a, an enormous amount of policy grunt, I suppose, that, that we didn't have before. So, so I'm trying to use that a bit. I, I did do some work um, probably four years ago using Google Maps data and scraping journey times over a long period of time. But these days, it's much easier. There's lots more mobility data. And again, each, each data set has got its own peculiarities. But the more you get, the more you can overcome or find out that but, um, by using multiple, you start to converge on some insight that then you can rely upon. So I'm picking up on your use of the, the word perfect. Uh, and Niels, you probably know where I'm going. Um, so you were heavily involved in the science gallery. <laughs> Obviously. Uh, you were heavily involved in the science gallery's um, perfection exhibition and um, built the, uh, the mirror. Um, how are you uh, seeing the use of kind of perfect and imperfect data sets uh, being used in city making? I really get the easiest question to start with, don't I? <laughs> Look, I think a lot of my work is centred around ethics and how we involve the public in discussions about ethics. Um, and obviously, once you start talking about ethics these days, the, the word data comes up straight away. Um, and there's something really interesting about how we engage with data. Do we just look at data sets and take them for granted? Do we immediately inform a decision, say, um, a new transport network or a massive government investment in transport or, yeah, new opportunities to, to improve the mobility and to improve access to the city, or are we actually going to engage with the public? Um, and it's my belief that data in itself doesn't really tell a story. It gives you lots of data points and it gives you lots of opportunity to to develop a story around, but it's really the public that you want to engage in that conversation and help them understand, first of all, what data they have produced over their life or while they're commuting or as they are using Google Maps. Um, and they are really the sort, of, the, the sort of source to help you build that narrative and, and subsequently inform policy. Um, and as you point out, Bonnie, um, a couple of years ago, we developed this sort of um, thought-provoking, I should say, prototype, um, so an AI that can read your face um, and that sort of spits out a number of assumptions about who you are as a person. And even though that's, that's very far away um, from what we're discussing today, so urban data and how data informs um, urban design, the narrative is exactly the same and that is that the public simply does not understand what data means or what sort of consequences, far-stretching consequences data can have. I might be perceived to be aggressive by my algorithm and that might automatically rule me out from, uh, say, certain types, certain types of employment um, or I might be automatically uh, surveilled by police. Um, I'm not saying it happens or at least it doesn't happen necessarily in Australia, it happens elsewhere. 
But I think when it comes to urban design and data being used to inform urban design, I think we have to follow the same sort of yeah precautions and, and be conscious that there is a person behind every single data point. Um, and it might just be a single data point that's a bit of an outlier, but that's really interesting for an urban design sort of yeah proposal or idea. Thank you. All right, I feel like everyone's kind of loosened up a little bit now. Um, if anyone has questions and would like to jump in, please feel free. Um, hey, Sarah, I'm going to come back to you because I know you did a, a whole lot of work um, recently around the um, Melbourne vision um, and used a lot of uh, qualitative work and stories with, um, with the community in Melbourne. Can you talk about a little about how you might bring qualitative data and quantitative data together um, to tell a, a compelling story? Yeah, I think um, building on what you were saying, you know, the idea that um, data doesn't tell all the story and that the, the stories are, you know, embedded within people and, um, you know, bringing qual and quant together and, and more than just sentiment but actually deeply really understanding in particular, you know, at the neighbourhood level how communities can own their own story and their vision is something that we're actually headed towards now. So um, as you were saying, Bonnie, we, uh, we worked with community to build the 10-year community vision, um, uh, something that each council uh, does to help understand how councils can deliver on the aspirations of community. Um, but we're now really taking that down to the neighbourhood level and understanding how, how those communities can actually build their own uh, visions and what it actually means and also how you give people ownership um, of those as well so that it's, it's not just something that's, that's owned by government because we want, to, we want to be able to share, you know, what... what what that data means and empower people again. How do you help enable them to realise their own individual aspirations by building capability and capacity within communities uh, to help enable them in the future as well? So I think, you know, there's there's the role not only for, for government to, to pull those that qual and quant together to be able to see the power of that, but that, that's also about empowering communities to um, be able to understand, use um, and enable their own futures with that data as well. And Narayan, you and you guys should feel free to ask each other questions as well. Don't wait for for me to jump in. But um, you talk about kind of understanding data and, and cities at different scales. Um, and Narayan, that's a lot of what you talk about: um, opening up access and democratizing access to data. Um, what can you learn from um, the data that you access and, and use? at different scales, so at like a regional macro scale right down to a local community. Thanks, Bonnie. Um, so the question was, how do we understand context through different scales or resolutions of data and how we might be able to apply that in, in different scenarios? Okay. Um, well, I think, you know, there's, there is this globalization factor at play, right? Cities are very like each other. And so there's a bit of almost uh, too much similarity that we might find. And, and, and one of these concepts of, you know, COVID and lockdowns and that there's a hidden benefit there of understanding that there's, a, there's this 
context in place and people had to pause and be in their local environment. And of course, that if you think about culture, where culture comes from, it comes from people being in one location for a long period of time. So maybe it was a bit of a pause to reflect back on our local culture, which then of course starts taking shape into our local communities. And we start thinking about the context of our place, our walkable catchments, our nearby parks, the level of exposure that we can have with other people. Then we're stepping up in scales, thinking about you know bigger precincts, broader communities in and around that, and then how these places are actually distinct and different from one another. Of course, cities are very much like brands on one, in one respect. They're competing against each other to attract businesses and offer the highest quality of life so people want to live there. And so all of these different resolutions or scales are important, I think, to consider uh, when we're building data narratives that people can use uh, to inform design and decision-making processes in all different aspects of, of city building. And so I think we have to be aware of the local context, but we also have to see the macro patterns as we step up and then learn the lessons from best practice from around the world and bring that back to enrich our, our processes. And I think... I'll pass to, to one of the other panelists to either build on that or move away. Marion, what do you think? So, um, so I think what you're saying is very interesting, but in my world, it's a little bit different to that. So because what I'm trying to do is influence policymakers, scale matters a lot. So the jurisdictional levels in Australia that are very, very different, they have very different powers, they have very different capabilities, different levers. And so when I think about how to use data, it's very particular to scale. Um, so not necessarily uh, different if you think of Melbourne versus Sydney, but very different if you think of Melbourne versus Geelong or City of Melbourne versus State of Victoria, for example. So, um, so I'm very interested to hear you see more about similarity in scale when it's so different, I suppose, to what I experience. But also, I guess, to, to build on that, there's sometimes artificial boundaries that we have. So the city of Melbourne um, is obviously just a, a series of suburbs within the inner city, but doesn't represent greater Melbourne. But obviously, working with um, other local government areas to actually get that full picture is important because understanding that a, an invisible boundary doesn't necessarily kind of shape or uh, give you the complete picture, I think is important. Most people walking around don't realise they've stepped from the city of Melbourne into the city of Yarra. There's, there's also something really interesting, and Marian, it's perhaps a question to you because I think you're the, the sort of the data tech person among us. Um, how we deal, look, I think when we talk about data, the, the five of us, we're very often talking about data from the digital sort of perspective, the ones and the zeros on, on some sort of um, hard drive or computer system. But how do we make sure that the data for which we don't necessarily have digital data, let alone written data, um, how do we still make sure that that data reflects or is reflected in how we design cities and urban experiences. And I'm particularly talking about here, us, Australia, culture of 65,000 years old with, with very limited sort of yeah, written data available about those histories and the narratives and, and the culture. How do we make sure that that is reflected moving forward? 
That's a very fascinating question and an interesting question about scale as well. So I, I think that there's, there's digital information that is created through our modern societies that we can, of course, look at to get an approximation of how things work, how connected our communities are, the level of activity in one place versus another, um, the level of economy in one place versus another, um, but also the narrative of place and culture um, is really important. And I think that whilst we have so much data available um, and we can use that and unlock that to broaden our understanding, we still have to do deep engagement with our community. We still have to get involved in the landscapes that we're designing and the places that we're curating um, in order to create great outcomes. So I think on, on the one hand, big data can reveal the big patterns, um, but it isn't all of the answers. And so I think there is this you know, intimate balance between deep quantitative analytics and of course, deep qualitative process. And, and I would say the qualitative data is the higher level you know, information. You really want to get to that level of synthesis that's about embodying all of the context, emotional, historical, um, et cetera. And so I, I would advocate that we have to be you know, comprehensive in that approach. I think another layer to that is just acknowledging that everything we build, every, every system, every map, every kind of snapshot of whatever we're looking at is also deeply imperfect. The idea that um, Thea Snow from the Centre for Public Impact talks about and that we create certainty artefacts, these kind of snapshots or moments in time or here's a plan or a strategy or, or a, you know, a thing that we're planning to do, but it, it, it's still deeply imperfect and such as the data, just being able to move in shorter cycles and feedback loops and also to kind of move at different speeds in order to kind of keep up with that. And how do we move um, acknowledging that it just needs to be constantly living and updated and we'll never have that picture of perfection? Excellent point. We keep coming back to perfect and imperfect. It's very interesting. Um, I would like to throw it open uh, to the audience if there are any questions. I'll give you a minute. I know it's scary. It took us, it took us quite a while to warm up here. You saw it. So take a deep breath and put a hand up and join in. Otherwise, I'm going to pick someone. Tim. <laughs> Any questions? Hi, Sue. Hi. So... The question is, uh, when you're talking about perfect and imperfect data, how can you understand, address, and start to mitigate issues around bias? Niels, can I throw to you first? I was going to say, I feel like it's a question for me, <laughs> or at least I'll start with it. Um, look, it's really something we wanted to test with um, that provocative thing that we built a couple of years ago with Biometric Mirror. Um, and I think one of the solutions, well, Solution is probably the wrong word, but at least one of the mechanisms to try and mitigate as much bias as possible is by developing a sort of inclusive process around how you deal with data. Um, and look, in, in reality and in practice, it's impossible that every single data point is assessed against the person that created it to, to sort of build up that narrative. So I'm, I'm very conscious that that's impossible. But it's really an argument to, to involve people in a in a sort of data analysis process as much as possible and 
organically and naturally you'll see where your individual biases um, arise and these might, so for instance in our project, those relate to, to gender identity, uh, those relate to cultural identity, ethnicity, um, and we all have them whether we want it or not. Um, the challenge is data um, tends to amplify these biases um, and it, it also tends to create a risk where you as a human have very little control after a while, you have very little control over how, over how these biases sort of eventuate. Um, and obviously, yeah, I don't have to tell you what the sort of devastating consequences of that can be. Um, so again, it's that argument for an inclusive process. Can I build on that? Am I able to jump in? Please do. <laughs> yeah, I just think um, that's a really great point. You know, building on that idea of collective sense making, it was talking about, you know, that participatory sense making synthesis of the work is the way to start to attack that, to start to, to break down, um, you know, those individual biases and again, get people involved, not just in, you know, creating the data or inputting into the data, but all the way through the process throughout. Marion, you look like you're about to jump in. I was just actually um, thinking about, so, so part of this is the process of collecting the data that you want an inclusive process as a way of minimising bias, but it's also what you do with the data at the other end that is very important. And the thing that came to mind with what Sarah was saying is that you, um, I was thinking about weather forecasting and how it used to be that people just went out and they had their rules of thumb and it was somewhat effective, at, certainly at the local scale. But now it's um, highly complex, highly, um, in, you know, supercomputers do this, but the forecasts are always better when it's a combination of the supercomputer and human judgment. The, the computer itself doesn't really get you all the way. There's, there's, there's still this knowledge that people bring and this judgment that they bring to bear in the interpretation of data that is fundamental as well as the process of collection. So I'm going to wrap us up and I'm going to ask the panellists to think about the greatest opportunities you see ahead for the use of city data in planning and design and community engagement. What's, what's the big, bright, shining, positive future, Niels? Uh, and uh, while you have a, a brief moment to think, um, we're going to swap over the panellists. And while that happens, um, our microphones need to be sanitised um, so that we're all being COVID safe. Um, and what I would ask you each to do is lock eyes with someone that you don't actually know that you didn't come here with and uh, start to think about a question that you might ask them uh, so that we can actually start to enjoy the fact that we are in this space with a group of people we don't know. Um, so Narayan, bright, positive, data-driven future. What do you think? Well, I think we're really fortunate to be able to access many, many decades of data um, to unlock our creative potential 
to design better cities and places and be able to test those continuously over time. So using data to create insights to better design cities and places and then use that same framework to continuously test and optimize them into the future. So I think it's really liberating our ability to, um, as designers and planners, to be part of the process of creating cities and places in a more active way and be able to continuously learn from what we're creating. Awesome. Marion, what do you think? I think the thing I am most excited about looking forward is that um, not only does new data allow us to um, have new information and new insights, but it allows for new opportunities of, of people matching together that we didn't have before, just by the pure volume. So I, th I think there's limitless possibilities for, for better matching and cities are, are in large part the place for that to happen. Sarah? Probably two things. So one is deep history and deep future. So beyond just the things that we've been collecting, how do we really tap into Indigenous knowledge systems and other ways of, of viewing? And then also how do, we, how do we think about imagination as data and link that to place in terms of what people want? Um, and then the second is really that participatory aspect. How do we get people involved in data stewardship and the collective so that there's a real true ownership and buy-in of, of the work that we're collecting? Nice work. And Niels, bring us home with something yeah, beautiful. I'm, I'm largely building on what, what Sarah said, and I'm going to put my inclusivity hat on as, again. I think we are very fortunate to live in a society where we as individuals are very much in control over the data we produce. I think that's definitely something to sort of, um, yeah, continue into the future, but also look at alternative models of individual data governance. and. I don't know, interfaces that allow us as individual citizens to control what sort of data we share, for what purpose, what, what the sort of outcomes of my data are, how they benefit me and my fellow citizens. I think there's a lot of opportunity in that area. Awesome, thank you very much. If you could all uh, give a warm round of appreciation for our panelists. Um, and we will, I think you can leave your mics here. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you.